I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. You've probably seen the photographs that Lindsay Adario has taken, even if you don't necessarily know her name. For over 20 years, she's covered life in Afghanistan under the Taliban, before and after 9-11, the U.S. invasion of Iraq and its aftermath, the genocide in Darfur, maternal death in the Philippines, too many conflicts, too much suffering, and too many places to name or even imagine. But she covers the small joys, too, of the ordinary experiences lived between the cracks of war, Children playing, young couples getting married, births, deaths, cooking, and going to the movies and reading and even sleeping. The contrast between these ordinary moments and their extraordinary, often brutal circumstances is a lot to take in and impossible all at once. Lindsay Adario's first book of photography, Of Love and War, manages the impossible, though, and holds together all the fragments of human life she's witnessed in her two decades of conflict photography. She joins us in the studio to talk about her life and work. Thanks for talking to me, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. So in your book, in the letter that opens it from March 2000, you're in Kashmir and you write, I have finally embraced war photography. What was it that got you to that point? You know, I don't know, because I actually never set out to be a war photographer. So I don't know how I came to that realization, (laughs) but I think... What happened was I was working uh, in the 90s in New York uh, for the Associated Press, and then I moved to India in 2000. And I started covering sort of injustices against women and life under the Taliban in 2000. And at that point, I remember um, India was gearing up for a visit by President Clinton. And I had an idea with uh, the photo editor of the Associated Press to go to the India-Pakistan line of control because every time an American president or an official came to India, things heated up on the line of control. There was a lot of fighting that went on between India and Pakistan to draw attention, of course, to the situation there. And so I asked to go. And when I went there, I felt like, okay, this is uh, where I want to be. And maybe conflict is sort of the root of the other stories that that interest me, like uh, human rights abuses, refugees, humanitarian crises. It all seemed all of the issues that I was interested in covering sort of stemmed from conflict. And so I think I kind of had that realization then and there. 
Yeah. I mean, has your coverage of conflict zones changed your approach or your relationship with photography? Yeah, of course, because I think my interest in conflicts and and the fallout of war um, has shaped all of my career. You know, basically, I for about a decade, I went in and out of war zones all the time. I mean, I essentially went home to unpack and do my laundry and repack. Um, So when I started covering conflict, and when I started covering, for example, life under the Taliban, and then September 11th happened, that was it, because I knew at that point, I was going to Afghanistan to cover that war, to cover the fall of the Taliban. And then right after that, we started talking about going into Iraq as a nation. And so it, it was clear to me that if we were sending American troops into Iraq, I needed to be there. If I had defined myself as a journalist and a photojournalist, you know, I wanted to be on the front lines of history. I wanted to be documenting the important stories of our time. So, I mean, what about the flip side of that? Has your photography there and your experience in these conflict zones changed your perception of U.S. foreign policy or politics in general? Yeah, so much. I mean, my my presence in these places has really changed my perception of American foreign policy. I mean, I think when I first started out uh, as a photographer working overseas when I was 21 years old, I was such an idealist and I believed that no country could rival the values and the integrity of America. And I was proud to be American. And I ran around telling everyone, I'm an American photojournalist. And, you know, and then fast forward to the war in Iraq and and going there on fabricated pretense of weapons of mass destruction and arriving in Iraq and realizing, you know, I spent weeks, if not months, looking for those weapons of mass destruction and obviously didn't find them. And then, you know, covering for two years what ended up being the injury and death of many, many Americans and Iraqis across the country that could have been prevented. You know, they were all basically the result of a war that we started uh, on on the basis of, of an excuse that never existed. And how is your experience of going to a foreign country as a U.S. journalist or as a journalist, period, changed over the years? When I first started out, I told everyone I was American. You know, I wore a flak jacket and a helmet with TV written on them. That's sort of the universal um, term for journalist. And now I do the opposite. I mean, I never tell anyone I'm American unless I'm asked to sort of show a passport. I, I just say I'm a journalist. I wear local clothes. I try to avoid wearing a flak jacket and helmet because I stand out. So I really try and move around under the radar in a way that I didn't before. Don't you stand out anyway, though, kind of as a white woman in these places? Um, So it depends. If I'm working in the Middle East, no, not at all, because I wear a headscarf or I wear whatever clothes um, and hijab the local women are wearing. And my features are very Mediterranean. um, And so most people think I'm local, surprisingly. Um, But if I'm working in Africa, obviously I'm white um, and often the only white person in a village. And so I do stand out. But I don't see the hostilities toward Americans in Africa the way it exists in the Middle East. You've written that one of the reasons you take photographs is because they have the power to influence policy. Hmm. So, I mean, how does a photograph influence policy? I think we've seen in some instances, like um, the war in Yemen, for instance, doesn't get a ton of attention. So that's a great example, because I just got back from Yemen. Now, 
every journalist I know who's working overseas and who covers conflict has been trying to get into Yemen, but it's not an easy place to get into. Um, you need uh, permission from the Yemeni government, but you also need it from the Houthis. And so the roads are not safe. Sometimes you have to be smuggled in to the north. And so it's a very complicated and difficult story to cover. And so as a result of that, there's very little news and information and photographs coming out of Yemen. And so uh, very recently, the New York Times was given a set of visas to send in a team for the paper and the magazine, and we were able to go. You know, we hope to affect policy because the images, the scenes that we saw were so devastating. Millions are on the brink of famine in Yemen, and it's unacceptable. I mean, this is a war that American tax dollars, Americans are helping perpetuate because we support Saudi Arabia. Maybe Americans don't realize that. You know, we're a bit more isolated from the rest of the world, from the Middle East. And um, hopefully when people see these images, they'll realize, you know, this is not okay. We cannot be perpetuating this war. Right. And I think you can already sort of see that U.S. response, even among everyday citizens, changes in response to images or especially egregious attacks like the images of the Yemeni school bus that was bombed. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's interesting what affects people, because if it's an image that is uh, gratuitously graphic, very bloody of fighters or bodies, most people don't want to see that. You know, people need an image which is a bit more subtle and something they can relate to. Or, you know, maybe they envision, what if that were my own child? That's something that's universal. We all put our kids on a school bus, you know. And so I think when you see images of a school bus that was bombed, that's where the war sort of hits home. Right. I mean, and that is a great segue into the stuff you cover in your book, because it is called Of Love and War, and you're known primarily as a war photographer, but there's so many images beyond battlefields and soldiers. So, I mean, how do you illustrate something so vast and complicated? How do you show the aftermath, prisons, you know, children born of rape, starvation? I mean, every assignment is different, So, and every story is different. So when I go to cover a war, for example, it, it really depends. I covered the war in Iraq 2003, 2004, from before Saddam Hussein fell until long after. And so the body of work that came out of that was really comprehensive because I was there so long. So sometimes I was covering battle. Sometimes I was covering civilian casualties. Sometimes I was just covering a cancer ward, for example, that didn't have the money to keep the young children alive who had terminal illness. And so, you know, it really depends on the story. Um, I recently went into Democratic Republic of Congo um, and also was in Uganda with women from South Sudan who were victims of, of sexual assault. So rape is a weapon of war. And so that's a very specific story that, you know, I'm looking for images that are respectful and that are dignified and that can tell the story in a sensitive way because it's a very difficult topic. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you get access to those photographs? That's, to me, always the biggest question in the very intimate and striking photographs that are in this book. Yeah. I mean, f look, I go into every situation. I don't have my cameras out. I'm not sort of like, you know, hey, let me take your picture. I mean, I, I go in, I introduce myself, I, I interview the person often at length about their life and their situation. And sometimes I know ahead of time what's happened to them and sometimes I don't. Um, and so I talk to them for a long time often before I start photographing. And so 
by the time I take my cameras out, that person is generally a bit more relaxed. Um, I'm a very open and honest person. You know, I, I explain why I think it's important to tell their story and to take pictures and, and to try and communicate what's happened to them to the rest of the world. Um, and many people understand the value of journalism and, and, the, and the importance of sharing their stories. They understand the international community can step in and can help, can give funding to local organizations that often work with these women and men. Um, so I think, you know, I don't have to explain that much in many situations because people are well aware of journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, you've said in your book that in a way that journalists function almost like therapists sometimes. Mm. Obviously, there's a strength in a journalist coming in and documenting something, but you are an outsider and you can just leave mm-hmm. whenever it's mm-hmm. over and mm-hmm. whenever the assignment is done. So is there a tension there between gaining someone's trust and telling their story and them knowing that you can just leave? I don't think they're resentful about that. I mean, I think I think what I mean when I say that journalists are a bit like therapists is that in most of the countries I work in are societies that are very closed, very conservative. And someone who sort of veers outside of the norm is often ostracized. And so a journalist like me can go in and talk to someone without judgment. You know, I have no stake in their life. If they've been raped, I don't think they're a worse person. You know, I understand that's not their fault, whereas in many of these societies, they're they're kicked out of the society for having been raped, even though it wasn't their fault, for example. So I think for them, it's so nice to have someone to listen to them and to talk to. So in that sense, it's quite useful and helpful for them. Look, something I struggle with all the time, perpetually, is that, you know, the fact that I was born into privilege, uh, I do have the ability to go into a situation and to leave, whereas most people don't. They can't choose their fate. Um, And so I think that's really difficult. But I talk very openly about that also with the people I cover, you know. I think it's very clear that I care a lot about the people I photograph, and I think they sense that. I mean, people are smart, you know. They they understand if you're going in to sort of take advantage of their situation and leave. And if they understand that you're genuine, then they tend to open up. I mean, how is being a woman and a war photographer opened doors for you? From the accounts in your book, I feel like it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, look, the one main risk I feel um, about being a woman in a war zone Uh, is that I can get raped. That was something that I thought about from the second I was kidnapped in Libya. Um, You know, when we were put on the ground and tied up and blindfolded and I was the first one to be carried away, that was the first thing that crossed my mind. And of course, the only thing that was in the back of my mind for the six days I was being held. Um, I don't think my male colleagues were worried about that. I mean, they were getting beaten, but I was getting groped. And so, you know, it was a different experience. I think it's always been an asset to be a woman. I've been able to sort of move around under the radar a little bit. Uh, I work often in the Muslim world where uh, men and women are segregated, so or they live sort of separate lives. So I have access to men and women, and so it's always been a great advantage. In America, at least, we're having a you know a reckoning with how women are treated in the workplace, shall we say? Mm. Have you experienced that on either side of the camera? I mean, I haven't experienced a a Me Too moment. I haven't faced sexual harassment, but I certainly have faced, especially as I get older and I'm a mother, what I think is discrimination in the sense that I've had an editor say, you know, I asked to go to Mosul for a publication and he said, oh, you're a mother now. You can't go to Mosul. 
And I wanted, I, I mean, I thought I was going to throw up because it's a, I've spent the last 18 years covering war. So who cares if I'm a mother? Do you say that to a father? I think my sort of way of dealing with that is to just plow forward. I mean, I, I think I need to keep pushing forward. I need to keep doing these stories. Who cares if I'm a man or a woman? If I have the tools to do them, I do them. It doesn't matter if you have children or if you're young or old. If you have the experience and you have the wherewithal to cover war, you should do it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when you're abroad, are you a foreigner first and then a woman? Do you experience pushback or? or it depends. Yeah. Well, it depends um, how, where I'm working and how I'm dressed. I mean, to be honest, mm-hmm. you know, I think if I'm uh, fully veiled and I'm working in a country, I'm seen as a woman, not a foreigner, because no one knows I'm a foreigner until I open my mouth, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that's useful for me because I don't want to be sort of spotted and and singled out. So I think. You know, that's also part of staying safe is, is to dress local. Um, I mean, speaking of slipping under the radar, I think a lot of images that escape um, regular coverage of war are regular people doing everyday things in the middle of a conflict zone, going to the movies, throwing a wedding party, having a baby. How do you seek out those images? Do you stumble upon them or? No, I mean, I think something that fascinates me and has always fascinated me is the the fact that life does go on in a war zone. And and we don't often see those images because we see destruction, we see malnutrition, we see death, civilian casualties, which is all extremely important. And obviously, that is war. But I think it's also important to cover the margins and, and the fact that life is going on. And there are people who have to figure out, how do I get to a midwife uh, if I'm pregnant and going into labor and the road between me and the hospital is shut down, there's a checkpoint. What if there is no doctor? What if all the doctors have fled because the fighting is so bad? That happened in Afghanistan under the Taliban. There were very few doctors. I was just in northern Nigeria a few weeks ago in Boko Haram territory working with Time magazine. Midwives are getting executed by Boko Haram. They're getting abducted and executed. People tend to think of war as one-dimensional, but you know, my job as a journalist is to say, wait, there's also the issue of like, how do you deliver a baby in a war zone? How do you get married? How do you have a life? You know, because life does go on. Mm -hmm. Was that something you knew sort of immediately on your first assignment? Or is that something that you sort of gradually realized? Well, I remember I was covering, um, I was on my third trip into Afghanistan under the Taliban. It was March of 2001. So it was before September 11th. And I was in Herat, which is Western Afghanistan. And I was covering uh, a drought. The governor of Herat had actually given this special dispensation for journalists to be able to photograph, which was illegal under the Taliban, because he knew they had to bring international attention to the fact that there was a very bad drought there. So I was there and I was photographing. And my driver said, um, you know, madam, I have to leave early because my brother has a wedding. And and I said, well, great, take me, you know, because I wanted to see a wedding. Like, you know, I was photographing all this devastation. And so I went with him. And under the Taliban, the streets were silent. I mean, music was illegal. All forms of entertainment were illegal. People couldn't socialize. Women were terrified to walk on the streets because... And men were terrified to walk on the streets because if their pants were the wrong length and if a woman's burqa was the wrong length, they could get beaten. And so it was silent and very desolate. And so we walked into this private home and sort of descended down the stairs. And the 
soundtrack for the Titanic was blasting and there were all these Afghans, like Afghan women made up and, you know, dancing around unveiled with men. And, and I couldn't believe it. I was so shocked because it never dawned on me that a wedding would actually happen in this really, really devastating time. But of course it would, because people's lives, you know, you can't put your life on hold. So I think that was the first introduction um, to the fact of this, like, in war is this sort of incongruous existence of, you know, continuing your life, but your life stops. You can see some of Lindsay's work on our website, theamericanscholar.org. But for the full experience, you'll have to get Of Love and War, her new book. It's a beautiful, big behemoth of a coffee table book and includes essays and letters and reflections, too. We won't be back next week because of the holiday, but we'll see you at the end of November. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.